0: This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised.
1: It's about class and privilege, morality, love and betrayal, power, all these things and how they collide. It's a story about... Ambition and the way that that could sometimes lead you to triumph, but it could also sometimes lead you to dark places and it can be deadly or your downfall as well.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories, behind the stories. Joe Pompeo is a senior media correspondent for Vanity Fair and an author. He's written a book called Blood and Ink, An Heiress, a Tabloid War, and the Unsolved Double Murder that Hooked a Nation on True Crime. Joe's tackled a very well-known case, but he's added a depth to it that I haven't read before. Let's dig into the Hall Mills story. What are the themes that we have to look forward to with this story?
1: It's a story about dark secrets, and shaking the foundations of a community. And I think for me personally, that resonates with me as a fan of Victorian literature and Twin Peaks and things like that. But really when a small, quiet community that can be completely upended by these dark secrets that are kind of lurking right beneath the surface. I also think it's a story about how the media and the public interacts with scandal and crime. That's something that with the birth of the tabloid press in the 1920s, when this story takes place, I think something that still resonates today with tabloid media and our obsession with true crime today, that was very much a huge part of this story.
0: So I love this time period. We're talking about 1922, New Jersey. This is prohibition and crime is up, even though prohibition was meant to drive crime down. What is New Jersey like in 1922 before we really dig into the story? Set the scene.
1: This takes place in Somerville, New Jersey, which is a very rural, kind of a quaint small town surrounded by farmland in central New Jersey, which is about 20 minutes from New Brunswick, which is where all the characters and the victims in this story lived.
0: So we have two victims here, and before we get into their relationship, let's pull them apart and talk about them separately. So you have an Episcopal minister, Edward Hall.
1: That's right. So Edward Hall came from a a pretty middle-working-class background. He was born in Brooklyn. At a young age, he enrolled at the choir school at Grace Church in Manhattan, which is a very elite institution for boys as young as eight, where they had this rigorous choir training. It was a way for them to get on a path that maybe wasn't as accessible to them in their ordinary sort of working class lives. So that's kind of the background he came from, And I guess, starting at a young age involved in some way in religion and the church. And he continues on that path. He studies and he goes to college in upstate New York. He studies theology, graduates in one of the largest, I believe, Episcopalian classes in the diocese in New York. And he goes on a path to become an Episcopalian minister. And he's kind of on this upwardly mobile path. He gets to a place in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, a church called St. Mark's, which is about half hour from New Brunswick. And he's kind of the assistant rector there. But then fortune strikes in New Brunswick, New Jersey at a church called St. John's, which is one of the other settings for my story. The rector there leaves and the diocese chooses Edward Hall to take his place. So he ends up in St. John the Evangelist in New Brunswick, which is a church where there's some very... It's not a wholly wealthy church. There's a mix, but there's some very, very wealthy, powerful families that are very involved in the church. And he finds himself suddenly in their midst. And this is how he ultimately kind of works his way into society, New Jersey society. He ends up marrying this very rich woman from the church who comes from an illustrious family and has lots of money and all that. So he ends up a member of society, but it was a very much kind of this upwardly mobile path that he took that led him there one of the open questions about this story is why did he marry Francis Paul. She was considerably older than him. At the time, by all accounts, she was probably thirty-five, I believe, when they married. He was a very charismatic, popular kind of ladies' man who probably could have had his pick, and I think did have other interests in the church, younger women who were a little bit more closer to him, both in age, but both also in class. So I think there's a really big question of was he a gold digger? You know, was this a very calculated move? And you know, as a, a reverend at the time, that was also an important social position. So I think that He may have felt like an outsider, but he also in some way had a position of power in in that familial dynamic. I think that he certainly benefited from marrying up. And I think he very much took to this new lifestyle that was suddenly available to him, living in a mansion and having access to money and wealth and all of that.
0: Do we have a sense for what their dynamic was in the marriage
1: Everyone in Francis Hall's orbit swore that this was a a happy marriage. She swore almost to the very, very end that he was faithful to her. They had this perfectly happy life together. I don't think he was happy in his marriage. It's very clear he was having an affair. There was rumors that he had a lot of friction with his brother-in-laws, that they didn't really like him. There was no violence and anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I think that he was just for a while, clearly, he's fooling around. And I think probably... Everyone knew it and didn't want to acknowledge it and, in fact, projected the opposite to keep up appearances.
0: Now, the woman that he was found dead with was a woman named Eleanor Mills.
1: So Eleanor Mills, she, you know, is the opposite of wealth. She comes from a a German family of, I think she had 12 siblings, grew up in a small crammed house. She came from working class immigrant parents and she did not finish high school. She ended up marrying at 17. Her child was born about seven months after the marriage. Hmm. Clearly, this was a shotgun marriage. She ended up with this, again, a much older man that she had started seeing when she was about just still a teenager, 15 or, or 16 or so, and seeing this guy that was well into his twenties. She ends up getting pregnant. They marry. He worked in a shoe factory. By the time that the story takes place, he's holding down two kind of dead-end jobs. He's a janitor at an elementary school, and he's also the sexton of this church. And the rector, Edward Hall, actually got him this job. Okay. As a sexton. So he's cobbling together this, you know, he's supporting his family on essentially. I think he says, he never made more than about $38 a week to support his family of four. They eventually had a second kid. So they live in this very small second-floor apartment, four-room apartment. But Eleanor, the thing about her is She's kind of caught between the Victorian world and the change that the 1920s are ushering in. And she really yearns for something more in life. She has big dreams. She wished she had finished school. She wants for her daughter to finish school and make something of herself. And I think that's reflected also in this this love affair that she developed with this pastor. Eleanor was also a very talented singer. She was in the church choir. That's presumably how this relationship first really sparked. The Reverend would come to choir practice. They, we don't know exactly the genesis of their relationship, but she became very, very involved in the church and even more so when Edward Hall became its director. But they were two people who were talented singers, married to considerably older spouses, wanted something more out of life. We think they were planning to elope and run away. She wanted to travel. She was very well read. I think that she took the hand that life dealt her, but wanted something much more. And I think that this relationship also kind of gave her access to something that she didn't get from her home life.
0: Do you think that Eleanor's husband knew about the affair? They did
1: have... Friction in their marriage. It was not a violent marriage, but it was not a happy marriage. Mm. They argued a lot, especially over if money was a big friction, a big pressure point in their household. She would save everything she could from her housekeeping budget to try to buy things to liven up the apartment or to make it better. She would take odd jobs. She was so involved in the church. It was known she spent so much time there, so much time with Reverend Hall. The families themselves too had a very interesting dynamic where the Mills family in some way benefited from their proximity to the halls. You know, when Eleanor needed an operation, the Hall family loaned them the money to cover this operation. Wow. They would mingle as not as social equals, but as, as church colleagues, and they would sort of give presents to one another. And Jim, to some extent, benefited from this arrangement, too. Jim's her husband. Is that right? Jim Mills, okay. Eleanor's husband. They were writing letters. I mean, everyone in town, it seems, especially within the church, knew about this. So it's really hard to believe that either of their spouses were not aware something was going on.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, this is 1920s. This just seems like ripe for moral outrage from the old biddies in the church who don't approve of this.
1: I think the church, there was, it was really a hotbed of gossip. But I think that because this was such a respectable yeah. family and also the, being the rector of the church, I just don't think anyone
0: in the congregation
1: was willing to say anything out loud.
0: You really found that they were planning to elope, that this was going to be a marriage potentially between the two of them? You know, that, it was sort of
1: speculation, but also one of Eleanor's sisters said that there was some belief that they would have eloped possibly to Germany. Edward Hall had also squirreled away and his, his safe deposit box after he was murdered was found to have about $40,000 in it. And 10,000 of that came from when his mother-in-law died and it was a bequest.
0: You know what's interesting? In the 1920s, it would have been common for, of course, the man of the household to control the purse strings and to just allocate his wife a monthly allowance, and he would take control of the rest of the money and pay the bills since he would be the primary earner. I wonder what happens in a household where the wife is the one who has all of the money through her family. I wonder what her access was like versus what his access was like.
1: One of the other characters that's important to note here is Francis's younger brother, Willie. She had two older brothers, the younger of her two older brothers, Willie Stevens, this very eccentric character, very childlike in some ways, but also very smart in some ways. He read all sorts of brainy books on metallurgy and he had this kind of childlike identity and he did not have access to his own money. His money came through a very meager weekly allowance and it was said that Edward Hall is actually the one who kind of controlled his finances and that this was a point of friction. So so Edward Hall did have some role, I think, in the financial planning of the family. Mm -hmm. And this also may have led to some of the friction between Francis's brothers and him.
0: Okay, let me try to summarize and then let's get up to the murders. So the summary for me is that Edward and Eleanor are having an affair. They're both married to older people. They both seem unhappy. Edward and Francis don't have children, right? That's correct. But Eleanor and Jim have two children. And... They're in unhappy marriages, they're having an affair, and it sounds like there's the potential that they might elope. What brings us to their murders? So
1: they were found dead in a field outside of New
0: Brunswick on September
1: 16th, 1922. We're now at the 100th anniversary of this crime. In the days leading up to their murders, Eleanor and Edward, as I said, they wrote love notes to each other. They left them in these kind of secret places in the church and hymnals. There was a certain book on one of his bookshelves in his study where they were said to leave love notes back and forth to one another. And all these gossips in the church, we think that they were aware of this. It may have intercepted one of these love letters. This is kind of the working theory because... These letters actually were found, they were recovered, because when the bodies were discovered, some of the love notes were actually scattered amongst the corpses, Mm -hmm. which were positioned in this very, fairly mutilated, I mean, Eleanor's had three bullets to her head, Mm -hmm. Edward had one, Eleanor's throat was cut from ear to ear to the point where she was nearly decapitated, and her neck was filled with maggots by the time that the Mm -hmm. bodies were found. But the clothing was completely neat, his arm was outstretched, her head rested on it, her hand was placed atop his leg, one of his calling cards was placed near the bodies, love letters so it's this very bizarre kind of chilling tableau some of these other people in the church there was two characters which are minor characters in the book and probably too much to get into here Were aware of these letters passed one to francis hall who becomes the main suspect eventually and that was maybe the catalyst that led to this that francis and her brothers were going to confront them at this trysting spot on this lover's lane outside of town we don't know for sure What happened? But that is kind of the theory that the prosecution ultimately landed upon at the time.
0: So Eleanor's body, that sounds like overkill. She seemed to be the main target and he was there. So what are investigators saying when they arrive to the scene?
1: It was a bumbling forensic situation. These two young people stumbled upon these bodies. They summoned the authorities. The first ones that arrived were just these rank-and-file patrolmen. Word gets around, it's a small town. Throngs start arriving. Crowds start descending on this murder scene. So the crime scene is completely corrupted almost immediately. They didn't take any photos. People were allowed to rifle with the bodies, the clothing, the notes. So everything was pretty much contaminated by the time a detective showed up and did some slightly more sophisticated type of investigation. But again, this is not a big city police department. This is from a rural small town where there's also a jurisdictional discrepancy, because as I said, the two towns that are central here, it's New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is in Middlesex County, and Somerville, New Jersey, which is in Somerset County. And the bodies were pretty much found on the border of the two. And you have some competition, too, between these police forces, so it was kind of a mess.
0: If Eleanor's throat has been slit, there's blood everywhere. Where's the blood? Which county is the blood in?
1: Well, here's the other thing is that there wasn't a ton of blood, and they believed her throat was slit post-mortem. Oh. That these bullet wounds would have killed her. They never ordered a full autopsy. They kind of did a cursory, like, morgue report. And I think there's also a sense of, you know, the Stevens family, they kind of want to shut this up, get it shut up as quickly as possible. So they kind of rushed to bury Edward as quickly as possible.
0: The Stevens are Francis Hall's family, the dead man's wife, now widow, right?
1: That's right. And it was all just a complete, a chaotic mess, really. But you know, there was a soil analysis that E.W. Squibb, what is now E.W. Squib, did. And this analysis concluded that the amount of blood that they did find at the crime scene soaked into the ground was enough to substantiate that they would have been murdered in that same spot.
0: Well, let's talk about the bugs, because I write about bugs in American Sherlock. Mm -hmm. So, bugs, I'm sure everybody here knows, come to a body in a certain order. Blowflies usually come first, and then there's beetles. So, maggots put it at, what, 24, 48 hours?
1: So the one person who gave the most competent initial inspection was a veterinary surgeon who appeared on the scene. And he also knew Edward Hall, so he was able to identify him. He said at the time he believed that the maggots would have put it at 36 hours. Okay. So the Thursday night when Edward and Eleanor both disappeared en route to their secret rendezvous, that would have been about 36 hours later. We're at Saturday around... 10.30 or so when the bodies are discovered. We believe that probably on Thursday night, the previous Thursday night, maybe sometime between 9 and 10.30 or so is when they were killed.
0: Whoever murdered them, did they know where? Did they follow them? Or did they know that this was an area that Edward and Eleanor must have frequented before to have privacy?
1: So in their love notes, they referred to their road. Hmm. There was a bench that they were known to be seen sitting together often in this park close to where the bodies were found. And also where they were found, it was kind of an infamous lover's lane at the time. It was a little trail off this road called Darussi's Lane, which is kind of this dirt road, but it was known as a trysting spot.
0: What happens with their list of suspects? They're looking at the family and the people who surround them first, I assume?
1: Their initial suspects are Jim Mills and Frances Hall and her brothers, her her family. They kind of pounce on Jim first, again, because Frances is this wealthy new widow. Well,
0: he's the husband, too. He's the husband, too, but they kind of give
1: her a day. (laughs) They they kind of... (laughs) They're deferential to her and, her, and their initial questioning is fairly deferential. But Jim, he had a pretty good alibi. He was seen out back doing some woodwork on his porch up to, like, 9 o'clock. He bought a soda close to 11. His kids came home around 10, 15. They said they saw him. There's a window where he could have made, huffed out to yeah. this farm and back and made it. But also, he was just such a dud. It's kind of even hard to imagine him having the will or an, even intellect to carry out a crime like this. Hmm. It just doesn't fit him. It, to me, as I've always felt that it doesn't seem like Jim is the has it in him to do this in some way. And again, like he seemed to have known about this affair for quite a bit and was kind of just accepting it. Wow. And maybe benefiting again from the proximity to this family. But they do, they look at Jim, but he never really becomes a suspect. And they start looking at the family. There's all sorts of little bits and pieces that are leading them towards Francis and her brothers. One is that they were seen entering their home late at night on the Thursday into Friday morning after the disappearance of the bodies.
0: All All of them? All three of them?
1: Just Francis and Willie. Okay. Who lived with her. The other brother, Henry, lived down the shore.
0: And there's a cousin involved too. Another Henry, right? A cousin?
1: There's a cousin. There's another Henry. There's a lot of Henrys and Edwins.
0: Oh gosh, that's what drove me nuts about the 1900s and 1800s. Everyone has the same name. It's hard to keep track. So Frances,
1: you know, they said. Oh, she said. Oh, well, Willie and I, we left to go look for Edward at the church. Turns out Jim had also gone to look for Eleanor at the church late at night, and he was the sexton, so he had a key, and they just missed each other. It seems. So all sorts of little things that, that are leading them to Francis, but there's really no, there's no smoking gun, and this kind of drags on for a few weeks. Immediately, this was huge national news, which is one of the other threads of my book, the way that this became such a spectacle for the newspapers all over the country, especially in New York. But there's pressure from the governor, there's pressure from the local public, the newspapers are putting out these editorials, they need to find progress in the case. And only after this very strange witness emerges, does the prosecution feel that it has something to go on that they can link this murder to Francis and her brothers.
0: Okay, so tell me what happens
1: next then. This woman emerges sort of out of nowhere. Her name is Jane Gibson. She's another really eccentric character, a fascinating character in this case. She lives on a farm adjacent to the abandoned farm where the murders occurred. She raises hogs, she raises pigs on this farm. a very convoluted backstory. She claims to have run away from home and become a rider in the circus. And this kind of pioneer woman living in this shack and kind of raising these pigs, but also... You know, and but corn and other things, and she's kind of also this keen businesswoman. Basically, comes forward and tells the authorities that she saw the murders. And her story is that on the night in question, she heard her dog barking, and she had had theft of some of her corn crop recently. And she said, "Oh, this dog's barking. That must be the corn thief. I'm going to go out and chase this guy down." She goes out. She sees some like wagon, kind of like driving in the distance. She mounts her favorite mule named Jenny. <laughs> And she goes out following this wagon down Darussi's lane, kind of loses sight of it, and then kind of gets turned around and suddenly hears voices. And mm. one thing leads to another. She ends up witnessing this murder. Even though it was dark, she claims she can identify. She saw at one point a car that shined light along the first part of her journey, shined light on two people's faces, who she later identifies as Francis Hall and Henry Stevens. It's a very wild kind of hard to believe tale and they pursue it and they take it seriously. The press coined her the pig woman because she raised pigs. She became a very famous, you know, for the pig woman became a very famous figure and she clearly relished the press to an extent. She was both hostile towards the press but then she would also accept money for them to take her photograph Mm. and it looks like both an easy case and a hard case because, you know, for the motive is there. These people had means. They could have pulled this off and covered it up. Right. But they also have nothing to go on but kind of this story of this maybe crazy woman. Right. (laughs) But that's pretty much what they go to the grand jury with.
0: Well, let's talk about the two main players here. So Francis and Jim, what are their public reactions to the murders and to the story in general? They
1: are completely shocked. We have complete faith in our spouses and they were friends. Jim especially comes out and he's like talking about how Edward Hall was his best friend and he was Hmm. so kind to him and he could never hurt a fly. And Francis and her family are very much saying all the things you'd expect them to say about his faithfulness and all of that. They are putting up such a strong front that they cannot imagine what their spouses were doing together alone on this dirt road. Francis's family was putting out all sorts of theories. This is a robbery gone awry, or maybe it was a blackmail gang. All sorts of red herrings that never really took hold. Everyone is, is kind of just playing dumb, really, and acting in complete shock and horror that this happened.
0: So going back to Jane, known in the press as the pig woman, I'm assuming that she could identify both Francis and Henry because she knew him, right? It's dicey.
1: I mean, this is a small town. Francis is a prominent person. At some point, she claims that she had seen her at a tag sale. Her statements and the way she initially identified them is vaguely within line with how they looked.
0: Aside from Jane as an eyewitness and these love letters, there's no other forensic evidence. Does anyone in the church make a statement?
1: I have the transcripts of the original depositions from this case and numerous members of the church. Testified. I saw them walking arm-in-arm in, arm in New York in Midtown near Times Square. There was this time down the shore. We saw them splashing. In, you know, there's all sorts of stories like that. The love letters were public because a number of them were found at the bodies. A second batch of love letters Charlotte found in a scarf hanging on a door in the apartment. Those eventually became public. They end up getting sold to the newspapers. So at some point, the love letters are all over America. But Jim says, you know, oh, well, Eleanor, she read lots of love stories, and she would write these notes. Notes that were just a fiction. Oh. It was just a game to her. Poor Jim and Francis just denied that they were valid.
0: So under arrest is this right? Francis, Henry, Henry, and Willie, all four of them.
1: So no one is arrested in 1922. When this is first playing out. They decide to go to the grand jury and seek John Doe indictments. Okay. So, the John Doe indictments, we believe they are for Francis. We believe they are for Henry Carpenter, who's the cousin. Mm-hmm. And there's a third one who we believe is one of the church spies who might have stirred this up and may or may not have also been near the crime scene that night because this is the Lover's Lane. People cavorted there yeah. aside from Edward and Eleanor. And there were very strong whispers that another man from the church had been out there with a woman from the church in their car joyriding. Wow. But they're not officially identified, but it basically it was Francis Henry Carpenter and this man named Ralph Gorstein who were the three John Doe indictments when they took this to a grand jury in 1922.
0: I don't think I've ever heard of a John Doe indictment.
1: I think it might speak to like the weakness of their case.
0: Yeah. Francis and
1: um, she went when the on the last day of the grand jury she went. She knew it was her. They everyone knew this is who they're putting on, who they want to bring to court.
0: So they took it to a grand jury in 1922, and I'm assuming Jane Gibson is their main witness. So this doesn't seem like a very reliable witness, just in general.
1: And she's just not credible. Yeah. She was not a credible witness. She's courting the press. She seems to be courting the press. And I think it was falling apart because the prosecutor, he was either giving up or he was blowing the case. He grills her almost like he's working for the defense. So there's a question of, was the prosecution, were they getting paid off to make this thing go away? Yeah. Did he just realize by the end that he didn't have a case? It was a pretty pathetic showing for the prosecution. And even some of the things that the press at the time expected might have strengthened their case. They did call some of these gossipy church people who are the types of people that we believe were intercepting the letters. A woman named Minnie Clark, who is kind of a rival of Eleanor Mills in the church, who's also very kind of fond of Edward Hall and Mm. had seen Frances the afternoon before they disappeared. Could she have passed her the note then? They didn't get into any of these kind of like supplemental theories that could have bolstered their case. They kind of just like barely questioned these people and really hung it all on Jane Gibson, the pig woman, and it just did not go... (laughs) go well for the prosecution. No
0: indictments. Yeah, no indictments. No indictments. Okay. So Frances Hall and her brothers and her cousin breathe a sigh of relief, I'm assuming, and life moves on for them.
1: Life moves on for a few years. And this is where like the subplot of this story comes into play. So in the 1920s, all sorts of innovations happening and excesses and frivolities. One of them is the tabloid newspaper. And the tabloids, you know, there was only one of them in 1922, the Daily News, which had came into existence in 1919, was modeled on... On this successful London tabloid, The Daily Mirror, which had been around for a while, doing really well. And The Daily News becomes this instant success in America. It's on the way, quickly becomes the best-selling newspaper in the country. And other publishers who had kind of like thought this tabloid thing was going to pass, eventually realize that, okay, we need to get on board here. So after the murders, the Daily News is chugging along. All sorts of other murders are happening that are are just like made for the tabloid press and all sorts of other, I mean, this was the era of the Fatty Arbuckle, which you know Mm -hmm. well from your book. All sorts of like these Jazz Aids mega crimes were just like left and right coming and and the Daily News is like going to town with it. Eventually, William Randolph Hearst Uh, yellow journalism (laughs) recognizes that he needs to start a tabloid too. So He starts a tabloid in 1924 to compete with the Daily News. Hearst launched is the Daily Mirror. A third tabloid a few months later in 1924 named the New York Evening Graphic comes on the scene. And early on, all these newspapers are sort of like, in their mind, they're thinking they'd love to crack open, reignite the Hall Mills case and solve the murders because that would be huge for them and huge for their circulation. The Daily News actually tried in 1923 to solve this case. So now two tabloids are at war. So this is really like the first tabloid war in American history. And Phil Payne's weapon in this tabloid war is
0: and Phil Payne is the editor of Hearst Daily Mirror.
1: He comes back again to the Hall Mills case and sets up this investigation and sends his people down to New Brunswick, and they start digging around. And this is taking us now into 1926, and this gives the case a second wind.
0: So what happens? Phil Payne
1: with the Daily Mirror sets up this very elaborate investigation and they go down, they're finding all these like circumstantial bits of evidence that were kind of glossed over and a lot of, it, so much of it is not hard evidence but they find out things like there was a cook that lived in the Hall household at the time of the murders and she was this close confidant of the family but was never interviewed, what's with that? And they find things like the chauffeur, he said he was, had only been working there for three weeks but we found this postman who said that he'd been getting mail there for a year, isn't that weird? All these kind of like circumstantial bits of evidence that seemed to be showing that something was up with the Hall family. Hmm. But really what does it is they find a guy who had married one of the two former maids from the Hall household at the time of the murders. Her name was Louise Geist. Mm-hmm. This witness comes out of nowhere, and it turns out he was kind of like this armchair detective who was also himself trying to like solve this cold case. And he meets Louise Geis and romances her. And they get married. And she doesn't know that he's, like, this guy that's really just trying to, like, get information out of her and solve this murder. Their marriage somehow goes awry at some point. Oh, yeah. But they find this guy. And he ends up writing a deposition that accuses Louise Geis the chauffeur, Peter Tumalti, Francis, and her brother, Willie, of all going to the site of the murders. Louise Geist basically says she accompanied them to DeRussi's Lane, the site of the murders, on the murder night. Doesn't say she saw the murders, but allegedly had told her husband that she was paid $5,000 or insinuated that she was paid $5,000 to kind of keep quiet about it. So it's a pretty, like, dodgy character but he basically wants to annul the marriage, and he clearly is bitter towards Louise Geist. Right. But he comes up with this story and says she knew all about it. They all got paid off. That is the revelation that Daily Mirror really uses to reignite this whole thing.
0: Now we're back on Francis Hall.
1: We're back on Francis, big time.
0: So, this guy's story is that Francis took her brother, Willie, along with her housekeeper and her chauffeur, to a double murder in the middle of nowhere. That's the idea.
1: That's the idea. The chauffeur, I guess, makes sense because someone had to drive them.
0: I mean, you would think you could drive yourself for this one occasion. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you think?
1: They went to confront them at the farm. And, you know, the theory at this point, the Daily Mirror in July of 1926 does a front page story, huge coverage throughout the newspaper. They blow this up and immediately, I don't want to say in cahoots, but they're working very closely with the prosecution. Phil Payne, he's a, another fascinating character. He's brash. Everything you would imagine like a tabloid editor to be. He had very close proximity to like the Hudson County political machine, which the governor was a part of. So he had connections and access to these people and kind of worked those connections to his advantage. So like he brings this dossier to them before publishing and says, I've found all this evidence that I think is worth a second look. He basically compels the state of New Jersey to take a close, serious look at this thing. There is one other piece of evidence that the daily mirror has in his possession, but is not revealed until a little bit later. And there was a, a calling card of Reverend Hall's found it at the body they have tracked down what is purported to be this card, which has a set of fingerprints on it. Hmm. And these fingerprints, they say, match those of Willie Stevens. So that's kind of the other bombshell evidence that they have that eventually comes out that I think compelled the state to take a closer look at this. And again, as you know, fingerprint evidence is shaky, very questionable. <laughs> there was one point where the Daily Mirror put on their front page, they blew up the calling card with the fingerprints. And on the front page of the paper, they like had this little graphic pointing to the five ridge characteristics. that. Oh, Matched the fingerprint of Willie Stevens. Okay. So it wasn't completely flimsy, and it was this like tabloid crusade that was in the interest of circulation.
0: Well, for any of the fingerprint analysts out there, we are not saying that fingerprint analysis is worthless. It's the quality of the specimen that you get. And it could be that a fingerprint on a calling card could be a good specimen for somebody to compare.
1: Absolutely. It's also a question of the provenance of the card. Yeah. Could Willie Stevens have handled his brother-in-law's card at some time? Yeah. Could it have been corrupted over these four years? Did they fake the card? I mean, Those are some of the questions that the defense really hammered on.
0: Is there a new prosecution team? This is four years after the original cases opened. Yeah, there's a new prosecution team, and the local
1: authorities are pretty much iced out of this from the beginning. Okay. Again, because Phil Payne had these connections to the governor and to the Hudson County political machine, which kind of like ran things at the time.
0: Okay, where are the spouses at this point, Francis and Jim? Francis did what you would
1: expect. She went immediately after the grand jury, went to Italy, Mm. went to the continent for a sabbatical with her best friend and was there for like a year. She came back. She kind of stayed very private, laid low. But Jim Mills, he just went about working as a janitor.
0: Raising two kids by himself, though. So what comes of this shaky witness who has vengeance against his wife and this maybe shaky evidence provided by a newspaper, what does the prosecuting team
1: do? They go after them. They eventually indict. Henry Stevens, I've mentioned before, he lives down the shore. He had this alibi that he was on the beach fishing with these other guys who live near him in La Valette, New Jersey, which is kind of center of the Jersey Shore. It's near, like, next to Tom's River. So he had these witnesses that said, oh, yeah, we were, we were with him on the beach that night. The new prosecutor kind of goes after them and realizes that their recollection is not as ironclad as it seemed. Mm. So he kind of starts breaking down Henry's alibi, and the pig woman again becomes a central figure for the prosecution.
0: But she didn't see the housekeeper and the chauffeur, right? She said she just saw Willie and Francis?
1: Alexander Simpson is the new special prosecutor from Jersey City who takes over this case. He kind of leaves aside, he doesn't really go after the whole Luis Geist story, which is really what reopened the case. What he's more interested in with Luis Geist is whether or not on the Thursday night of the murders, when Edward disappeared, he had gotten a phone call from Eleanor. And Luis Geist answered the call. And Francis at one point picked up the phone, and Luis saw her pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor at this point is trying to establish that Luis could not definitively say that Francis hung up the phone. Um and if frances hadn't hung up the phone she would have heard their plan to rendezvous and known the time and the place so that's kind of what he focuses on with louise
0: so what ends up happening with this case
1: it goes to trial Jane Gibson, once again, is the star witness. The calling card comes up at trial in a very big way. They went after her credibility in a big way. Mm -hmm. And it's still hinged on this story of hers, which she had changed details all along the way. She had different versions of her fateful mule ride. So it was very hard to believe her, I think.
0: So what ends up happening with the trial? We have the one unstable witness who comes on, Jane, the pig woman. Is she convincing or no? No.
1: She's not convincing. There were so many things that came out about her story that she had misrepresented, didn't add up. That They were able to just portray her as not having an ounce of credibility. Mm -hmm. And the jury was in agreement about that. But there were two jurors who just couldn't get past the calling card evidence. But they were ultimately convinced otherwise, and there was an acquittal. Wow.
0: And is that the end of this story?
1: It is not the end of the story, Francis and her brothers, they sued Hearst for libel wow. after this happened. So this caused problems for Hearst as well. In September of 1969, an old, uh, I shouldn't say old, old at the time, he was 67. He was in the hospital, St. Peter's in New Brunswick, which happens to overlook the park that was adjacent to the farm where all this happened. It had been a big, mm-hmm. you know, it had been where Eleanor and Edward met on their lover's bench and all that. And he's sitting in this hospital room overlooking this park and he thinks he's on his deathbed. He has this really bad bone infection. His foot got run over. He owned a guest. Station. his foot had got run over a few weeks earlier. Separately, he has like a heart attack. Oh and he overhears the nurses talking about how he might not make it. And he has this crisis of conscience and from his hospital room calls up the New Brunswick Police Department and says, I have information about about this murder from 1922, the Hall Mills murder. And he gives them this story, which kind of gets buried for a few months because they had other stuff going on. But someone at the New Brunswick Police Department, the detectives unit, a few months later, picks up this police report. And this guy, his name was Julius Balog. He was an old Hungarian man from New Brunswick. There was a a large Hungarian population there, Mm -hmm. still is. And his story is that he was good friends with Willie Stevens in New Brunswick. Willie was known to hang out kind of in the Hungarian quarter.
0: And this is Frank. Francis's brother.
1: Francis's brother, Willie Stevens, mm-hmm. who was acquitted
0: with Francis and her other brother.
1: And he gives this story that Willie hated Edward Hall because he controlled his allowance, oh. which was a note that they hit in the early, in 1922. That was yeah. something that was came up in the newspapers. He said he hated him. Everyone knew about the affair. And Willie, he says hired two hitmen to off Edward and that he had unwittingly delivered the hit money to these two hitmen for the family. And he claims that Willie found him on the street one day and said, I need you to do something for me. And he leads him to a car and there's an older woman and there's a guy who fit the description of Francis and Henry Stevens and... They give him these two envelopes and he goes around to the corner a few blocks away and hands it to these two local thugs. One of them owns, again, like a speakeasy in downtown New Brunswick. And he gives him this money, these two envelopes, there's $3,000 each in it. And Willie later tells him that, oh, the job's done. And he said that they killed him. And so he comes with this story, which again seems so strange and unbelievable and outrageous. But they actually do put a a detective on this to reinvestigate the case. So this this detective named George Saloom goes and tries to interview anyone who was still alive, anyone who knew. And he does find little bits and pieces.
0: 48 years later. Yeah. I mean,
1: that's a long time. And he does corroborate some details of of like things that Julius Boliag told him. Mm -hmm. But they also gave him, again, you can't put too much stock in lie detector tests, but they gave him two polygraphs which he had passed with flying colors. They gave him a psychological evaluation. But again, they they couldn't find... He couldn't find the smoking gun. He found a record of one of these two gangsters being murdered in 1933. And he brings up his newspaper article with three men of them. One of them is this guy who has been identified as the hitman. Mm -hmm. And he points to the guy and, and he says, yep, that's him. So he confirmed his name. He confirmed other people that this guy spoke about in his story. I mean, it makes you wonder, why would he have come forward with this story? How could he have just made this up? Right. And they're never able to find the other hitman of the two, a fascinating development that just comes out of nowhere decades later.
0: So is it wrong that I believe the pig woman for some reason? Because the overkill, two gangsters, are they going to really slit some woman's
1: throat? I think in the end, in some way, there's too much smoke around Francis and, and the brothers for there not to have been something. Like, it can't be that everyone was lying or made something. I just feel like yeah. in some way it points back to them, whether it's through Jane Gibson, whether it's through Julius Balog or or anything else, because none of the other theories really add up. Bill James, in his book about popular crime, he actually, this is Bill James, the statistician and... and
0: mm-hmm. Man on the train.
1: Yes, he actually makes this big case for Jim Mills because it's the most obvious. And having studied this and knowing these characters so well, I just don't think that Jim Mills... <laughs> Had the will to do this.
0: Hmm. There is no satisfying ending for anybody in this story. That's right, and I think that again, to bring this back
1: to what I said at the beginning about about ambition, I think that this will sound horrible to say, but you know, Eleanor, her ambition was to live a life that was better than what she was given, and I think she thought she was she was on the path to doing that. If they were really going to elope with this man that she was in love with, who had had enough money to go and set them up, and in Edward Hall's case, you know, he had clearly inserted himself into this station that was beyond the station he was born into. You know, he was ambitious about his own position in life. And these two people find themselves, they they find each other, and they're trying to, both of them want something more. Both of them want a better life than they have, and they're going for it. And they end up getting killed for it.
0: On the next episode of Wicked Words, Dr. Ann Burgess on being a real hunter with the FBI. My very first contact was Roy Hazelwood. Now, Roy was the new agent that was given the task of having to train in the area of rape victimology. So he brought me into the FBI for training, or lecturing. And in that process is where I met first Bob Ressler, who was really the protege, if you will, of the very kind of informal profiling program that was going on, and he then introduced me to John Douglas. Those are the two agents that are characterized in Mindhunter. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold War Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. The producer is Alexis Emerosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.